Good morning to you, Jan. How are you? David, isn't it exciting? It, it, we've got a full studio. We have got a nice few and cosy. Stuff. We've even got an editor here. An editor? Oh yes, my goodness! Yes, and two authors and, and two, two presenters. So uh, let's get on with it. After you. Well, I enjoy the reading the occasional crime novel. You know who the goodies and the baddies are, and by the end, everything is fixed for the greater good. But with a psychological thriller, you're never really sure who the goodies and baddies are and how it will end. Tanya Chandler has written a ripper. Please don't leave me here. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you, Jan. Now, this is even a question to everybody out there. Did you know psychological thrillers have been given a new name? Mmm, domestic noir. (laughs) But before we go into the blackness... That's the noir of the genre. Let's look at the domestic scene. Tell us about the Campbell family, please, Tanya. The Campbell family is Bridget and her husband, Sam, and they appear to be a normal, happy family living in inner city Melbourne in Clifton Hill with their two young children, Phoebe and Finn, and all appears to be quite normal, quite happy until the reopening of a cold case. <gasps> the domestic woes from the inside. There's a little bit of unhappiness. But, but, yeah. So before this, well, prior to this announcement, what's wrong with Bridget? What's wrong with Bridget? Well, there are a lot of things wrong with she Bridget. She looks in the mirror and she sees scars for a start. Yes. Well, she has had a very difficult past, a difficult upbringing, a mother whose voice she still hears criticism from in her head. She's uh, got constant pain. Constant pain in her back from an accident that happened many, many years ago. And she's got no memory of this hit and run. Or does she? Or does she? Mm. So how did she meet Sam? She met Sam. Well, it was interesting because Sam just happened to coincidentally be the investigating officer, uh, the, the detective who investigated the crime that she may or may not have been involved with 14 years ago. And he was he was acquitted from tampering with evidence. That's correct. Mm. Mm. Why is Bridget constantly worried about Sam's job? About his job? Oh, she has... Stemming from her childhood, she has a fear of abandonment, actually, so she's worried about him leaving her. You mentioned that he, she's always got her mother's voice yes. in, her, in her mind, and this is a little quote from the book. When we were little, waiting for Dad to come home, Joan would carry on about her bad feelings, telling us all about those horror truck crash stories. That's where all the anxiety about being left alone comes from. Now, she really wants her husband, Sam, to change jobs. She really wants, uh, you know, she's she's tired of sole parenting. But there's something good that comes into her life. They're invited to a party and he actually gets the night off to go. And who does she dress as? She dresses as Marilyn Monroe. And Sam is actually on call, so he doesn't really have the night off. His work is never far away from him, so he never really gets time off being a so you get this whole feel about her dressing up yes. you know, this and taking on perhaps another more outgoing, um, flirty type of characteristic. And who does she meet at the party? Well, she meets, well, not Jeff Buckley, but someone dressed as Jeff Buckley. She meets 
at the time, unbeknown to her, one of Sam's work colleagues called Aidan. Aidan Sarah. And what is Aidan Sarah's job? Well, he is working for the cold case unit. The cold case that happened when she, when she was, just before she was hit and run and lost her memory. Exactly, yes. Mm. Sam says something. Keep your enemies close. Oh, Aiden says. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, Aiden. Oh, that's right. Well, how close does Aiden get? He gets very close. Mm. They end up having a an affair. Yeah, yeah, not really an affair. On the kitchen. <laughs> yes, on the birthday cake. <laughs> on the birthday cake. <laughs> and this is another quote from Tanya Chandler's book. Please don't leave me here. Guilt competes with physical pain. It worms its way under her skin, stirs the juices in her stomach and wraps darkness around her throat, making it hard to swallow. Oh dear, yeah. This is when she starts to start worrying about everything. She's got the guilts from having the, 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 quick, the quickie. Yes. And uh, <laughs> he's living out in the bungalow at the backyard. That's right. And... Oh, everything happens. She starts thinking she can't get it, let him guess that she knows what he's up to. He's bugged the house, taped her phone, placed plainclothes cops in the houses along the street to watch her and set up a covert website about her and a dedicated crime stopper. And yeah. he, he comes in and after a while, I know you did it. I know where you worked. I know what you were. I know everything about you. Will he find, this is the love of her life now after that quickie, will he find that she's the killer? And then, Tanya Chandler, you change pace. We get the second part of the story about a girl. Yes. What's that about? Well, the the title comes from a Nirvana song, which is important to the story, the music, the time. Yeah, the music. Absolutely. Nirvana. I think you must have been keen on Nirvana, are you? The funny thing is I wasn't really before I wrote this story until I started researching Kurt Cobain's life and his story and his music, a very sad story. So I was quite captivated by what happened to him. Now, um, in the story we have uh, Bridget, Bridget who was hit, hit and run yes. in 1994. What happened to Kurt Cobain in 1994? Kurt Cobain suicided in 1994 as well and that's the opening to part two of of the book. It's structured in two blocks and um, that's that's how it starts with the news to the world of Kurt being found dead. Yeah, yes. So back in this bit we get more of uh, Bridget's backstory Mm -hmm. about her mother and um, her mother was very beautiful. That's what Bridget can remember. Her mother was an actress, yes, well a failed actress who had to apparently give up her job as an actress when Bridget was born. So I think that's where all the the guilt was put onto her. And we sort of start to read through this that Bridget also is very beautiful. Yes, yes. She's she's very eye-catching. Oh, absolutely. Because you see how every male that passes her sort of stops and looks. and But she doesn't actually, I think, feel it in herself. No, she doesn't feel it herself. She's one of those people that... Um, you will walk into a room and light up the room and people are drawn to her and for some reason people want to help her and love her but she doesn't see that herself, no. She sort of sees, looks part at her, oh, her own her mother and mm. um, a lot of her female 
relatives right back to the, her great grandmother, and and th- thinks she may have inherited the mess gene. The mess gene, yes, yes, they're all a bit of a mess. Her great grandmother apparently fell down the stairs, but her grandfather confides that it probably wasn't an accident. Mm. And there's a, a threat of alcoholism through the family. Yeah. So, and this whole idea of addiction sort of comes yes. through because she doesn't take things easily, does she? She sort of, um, well, if it's not a beer or whatever. <laughs> yes. More of a, a binge drinker or, yeah, addictive personality type, I think it's And called. the ability to find dodgy doctors. Yes. The, her own doctor would have said, um, no, no more painkillers, you know, go do some yoga That's breaths. That's right, do the but deep breathing. It's the, <laughs> the, the yoga doctor, the dodgy doctors with too many prescriptions mm. and the desire for alcohol. And I love the sense of... Um, of subconscious that she she doesn't actually trust herself she actually waits for the man with the hat on the johnny walker bottle to tell her whether she should have another drink or not yes who would you go to for sage advice besides johnny walker so i I think um johnny walker was like her good conscience and when she was having psychotic episodes she was hearing the voice of johnny walker telling her you know to to be good and on the other side was the ghost of kurt cobain telling her to um, be bad. <laughs> it's a toss-up here. It sounds crazy, but yes. Well, <laughs> crazy too are her dreams yes. or hallucinations if she's had just a bit too much of anything else. Mm. And what are the main features of these dreams? The dreams, she dreams of the past, of her grandparents' place, memories start coming through, little hints and clues from the past. A lot about Kurt Cobain mm. as it goes on. So I had to... Wearing a brown jumper. A brown jumper, yes. Mm, That sounds weird. (laughs) But it possibly wasn't really Kurt Cobain in her dreams. Oh, don't tell too much, Tanya. You've written Possibly. it, but you don't, don't let tell too much. Look, you mentioned it's sort of set in Clifton Hill, and I love the locality that's written about in this book. You know, we have Richmond, we so many places that I know, and Hardware Lane. And if anyone's been down Hardware Lane, they know that the, there's the CAE. To Graves Street. Oh, to Graves. To Graves, thank you. To Graves Street. And uh, there's the CAE course uh, that's building right. there. And Bridget does a course. What course? <laughs> she does a creative writing course. A creative writing course, and That's I love right. this. I, I, look, I thought it was wonderful because have you done one? I have done the professional writing and editing course at RMIT. I just thought that um, the whole... <laughs> Nothing like the, the CAE course, really. But, but it's the people that were mm. in the course that were really great. And I think a lot of teachers also are interesting. So let's hear about Bridget's teacher in her creative writing course. The teacher introduces himself as Matt Ellery. He's wearing a brown sweater, jeans with frayed cuffs and scuffed Converse All-Stars. Bridget guesses his age is late 20s. He's a bit skinny and his collar-length dirty blonde hair could do with the trim. There are no designer labels on his clothes. He's had a novel, which Bridget has never heard of, published, and he writes regularly for food magazines and anybody else who asks him, including Mad Monster Trucks Monthly. <laughs> the class finds that funny. He doesn't look like a monster truck kind of guy. <laughs> I found that funny too. <laughs> if you can get your work published, <laughs> you go anywhere. <laughs> but I thought what was interesting is it, it helped Bridget actually write snippets of her own life and use her Im- imagination and also prove to herself slightly that she had some brains. Mm, true, yes. 
Yeah. And what about Tanya Chandler? How did you get this book into into publication? Because it's debut novel. It is. Well it is my debut novel. Oh, when I was studying the um, writing and editing course, my, one of my lecturers suggested I send my manuscript into one of these unpublished competitions. So I did that. And at the same time, I sent it to another manuscript development program. And while I was doing that, I thought, you know what, why not send it to a publisher, seeing as though you've got it already. So the publishers generally ask for the first three chapters or a certain number of words. So I picked my dream publisher, someone I thought it was way beyond me, and thought, well, why not? So I sent it off. And I think it was within a week I heard back from the publications team asking to see the rest of the manuscript. And then I got almost had a heart attack when I got an email from Henry Rosenblum, who's the, the founder of Scribe, saying he was also intrigued and can he, could he have a look at the rest of the manuscript as well. So I sent it to him and I think it was about a week later I was in there signing a two-book contract. Oh, right. Yes. And next week it comes out in the UK. It's being published in the UK. And we've also sold the German rights. So... Tanya well, Chandler, quick. well done. <laughs> Very quick. Yes. So did you do that all yourself or did you use an agent? I did it myself. Yeah. The funny thing is I'd just written a piece about, you know, how slush piles were a waste of time and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then so I went straight through the slush pile. Wow. And it's endorsed by Graham uh, Simpson. Yes. Who also sort of came through. Yes, he was in, my, he was in one of my classes early on at RMIT. And because his Rosie's project yes. sort of took a similar route, unpublished yes. com- competition. And yeah, yeah. I had to withdraw from the the unpublished competition because you were yes, published. Exactly. Oh, how embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's just wonderful. Look, uh, please don't leave me here. Which is, is a quote from a Naverna song? No, no, no. It's a quote from from uh, Henry. Oh, oh, really? <laughs> this was Henry's name. My original name. It had a lot of names actually. Yeah. It started off as a Nirvana lyric, but you can't use song lyrics. And then it was called "Come as You Are," and and that wasn't a good title. And then it was called it was called "Dumb for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a Nirvana song, and when I sent it into Scribe, it was called Grunge, and it came yes. Which oh, no, then it came out as Please Don't Leave Me Here, which which yeah, is I is think better. that's better than Grunge. <laughs> a story where pain and fear, memory loss and lies are only laid to rest by truth and letting go. Mm. Tanya Chandler, I, I really found the psychological thriller, or should I say domestic <laughs> noir book, most readable. So Tan, Tan, Tanya Chandler, please don't leave me here, published by Scribe. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Jen. Well, I haven't really got a segue to go from your book. Well, sort of, you've come up with a new sort of uh, style or genre. Um, so books do come in many shapes and forms, as does writing. So my guest today, Cassandra Atherton, has just had a word work release called Trace, which is part of a Finlay Lloyd Smalls collection. So, Cassandra, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Now, if I ask someone to tell me about their Smalls, they would think <laughs> me rather rude. What are Finlay Lloyd Smalls and how did you get involved? Finlay Lloyd Smalls are wonderful because the publisher actually uh, commissions five authors to do anything they like with 60 pages, which I think is kind of unique because most of the time with other publishers you have some constraints placed on you, but they really don't have any constraints. You can do whatever you like, which means that uh, in the set that I belong to, we have you know a long essay, we've got uh, a bits and 
Bobs from Paul McDermott, who has illustrations as well as poetry, as well as prose. And they sort of all fit together. So I think you called them earlier on kind of snack size. So they all fit together in this kind of snack size way and they form, I guess, like a, a family Cadbury quality block of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ca- Cadbury are reducing the amount they're putting they in their too. chocolate, but they this is too. full of... Yes, uh, this is old Cadbury. <laughs> old Cadbury, a dark chocolate too, uh, to, to put it that way. Um, now, I don't think I should be categorising your writing, um, and I've tried. It's sort of poetic prose or prose poetry. So what I'm going to do to give the listener a sort of feel is just simply read one out. So this one's called Rubbish. It is Tuesday, and I'm dreaming that I live inside the trash can on your computer screen, bottom right, lid slightly ajar, my head popping up at intervals, not to offer you advice, but to ask you why you left me. You have three reasons, but I can't hear what they are. The trash can graphic is too solid and the sound waves ricochet off the crenellations, facets, indentations. You have to type your responses and drag them to me so I can read them. I wait for you in the trash can. I wait for your mouse to lift me up and make me an icon. I want to be a square pink button with a harp sound when you click on me. I want to shimmer and pulse so you recognise me. I want you to constantly press on me. Double click. Is there a triple or a quadruple click? I want your mouse to slide over me as I sit patiently, singing kumbaya and toasting pink marshmallows listening for you. You never let anyone else use your computer. No foreign fingers have ever touched the keys, so I feel safe, innocent, virginal. I'm only yours. I am the only trash can you have ever used. I wonder if you have ever been unfaithful, if you have ever used other computers when I'm sleeping. If you prefer other trash cans to mine, I worry every day that you will go to empty trash and I will disappear. Can you come to readings and do that for me in place of me having to do it myself? That was wonderful. Well, it's the writing, though. What have you done here? I think it's about rhythms and I think it's about playing on some of the more quotidian things you do. So I remember that that prose poem came specifically from staring at the blank screen, that idea of the anxiety of the blank page that's now become the anxiety of the, you know, iMac or whatever you happen to be using. And, you know, I kind of, I was kind of attracted to that icon of, of the little rubbish bin in the right-hand corner and it makes a wonderful noise on the on the Mac when you drag something into it. But it's also this notion of contemporary imagery that that's you right. can use to express things. I mean, this is almost sensuous and sensual. (laughs) What's going on between you and your computer? Oh, look, it's on my lap a lot. What can I say? Oh, dear. We better be careful about how (laughs) how we talk here. But yes, disposing of somebody just through the trash can. That's right. It'd be easy, wouldn't it, if it was that? <laughs> if it was that easy. But yes, when you when you empty trash. I mean, do poets look for contemporary images or? Yeah, I think they do. You know, I think there is a bit of a misnomer or there has been, I think, that poetry sort of on the way out. And I think at the moment it's incredibly healthy or certainly in the circles um, that I move in it is. Perhaps maybe through more independent publishers because I know that some of the major publishers have, have dumped their kind of poetry lines. But I think that poetry poets are looking for ways to connect with a broad public and to keep that tradition um, of 
of speaking rather than just reading everything off the page as well. So if it is attractive and it looks like it might sound good, you know, people will come along to readings and they'll hear it, I guess, in its most primal perhaps form. But it's, it's not just the images, it's also um, the sound right. of language as well. I mean, you've got one called Entitled that opens up with Dedicate, Desecate, Desecrate. Um, how important then is sound? Totally important. I mean, especially when you're looking at prose poetry, it would just be prose, I think, in a way, um, if you weren't looking specifically at the way that things riff off one another. So rhythm and sound are so important in, in prose poetry. And most of, most of the people I know who write it do read it aloud uh, as they're redrafting. So it is very much a part of the, the ear rather than yeah. anything else. I mean, to hear the, the language and, and how it is expressed. I mean, we were talking about C.J. Dennis yeah, before. Yeah, fantastic. And how he captured the voice of mm -hmm. Australia and the idiom That's of right. Australia. Um, I'm just wondering, what is the idiom today in Australia? I think that's tricky. I think it's something a bit more postmodern, um, and I'm not a huge lover of postmodernity, to be honest, but um, I do sort of believe in the polyphony of voices that we have, you know, thrown at us. We multitask. We do many, many things. We splinter ourselves into a million different people and persona on a daily basis. So, you know, I think it's kind of chaotic, interesting, kind of complex um, in the way that it overlaps one another. I think in, in poetry, for me, that's how it works. It, the language is something that um, is enriched by what comes before and after it in the sentence, if you like. Mm. And I mean, even just when you're talking now, splintering, that just finding the right image to explain what's going on. And we need it more and more today to, to actually, in many ways, come to terms with with the, the nature of our lives, the complexity That's right. of our lives. Yeah. Finding an appropriate image. Um, illustrations. Illustrations. Aren't they brilliant? I mean, um, Phil Day is the illustrator and I've worked with him before. So that's how my involvement with the Finlay Lloyd Small sort of eventuated was through Phil. And um, we collaborated on a few projects. We have a sort of a two-way collaboration where sometimes he works from what I've written and other times I work from what he's written. So depending on the project, we do it that way. And he liked the idea of Trace when I told him about what I'd sort of planned for the title and the theme. And I actually watched him do all of these or majority of these uh, illustrations which was exciting so he did it sometimes with three or four pencils in his hand as he freehand sketched them he wanted the fluidity and he didn't want them to be over stylized so just yeah. to explain to the listener I can't really hold this up to <laughs> the true. to the microphone but they're sort of open illustrations line drawings but they are sort of capture so much atmosphere but you said 60 pages before mm. some of these illustrations have their own page so yeah. to speak yep they're so, part of this they're so much a part of it they're equal on equal footing with the prose poetry for sure so we should have had um phil in here yes. talking about this um i'm just wondering i'm going to read another one but i have i lost the spite corner of the sky here we go. Um, but what's interesting here is um, people understanding all the imagery and the audience then um, who would therefore appreciate these sorts of works. So here we go. It's only These are only short, so you can just, you know, I'm going to have another block of chocolate. <laughs> you tell me that you're almost ready to breed Cox's orange pippins with me, planting the seeds of a future together, sweet apple branches reaching into our own corner of the sky. 
I imagine our cider drunk love, your buttonholes full of apple blossoms creeping up your lapel. I am thrilled to the core, but that gives you the pip. You want to train thoroughbreds for the cock's plate, a stable of champions reared on cox's orange pippins, and your buttonhole will be stuffed with the fat tutu petals of a Cecile Brunner rose that I pick for you on the racetrack on race day. But I won't be gay to your Robbie Waterhouse. We won't have a fine cotton affair. My heart is as big as Farlap's, but you have a birdcage for a rib cage, and your heart only fancies a flutter at the track, arrhythmia, tachycardia, the beating of the hooves down the straight. So I sit with my back to the track at Mooney Valley Bistro while you order warm apple crumble and take a gamble on our future. <laughs> now, Jan identifies with that. Jan, Jan's a horsey. Oh, really? Horse. Wow. <laughs> She's going to disappear to go to the, to the, to the races. Have a flutter. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I love this. You know, having a flutter and all, but there's that romantic connotation or can you have an affair with a horse? I mean... <laughs> I'm not sure about that, but I, I do live in Mooney Ponds, so I think Mooney Ponds has an affair with horses, put it that way. It's right. certainly huge for the uh, around cup, cup time. But then, I mean, as I said, Jan would appreciate that. Jan's got a background. Mm -hmm. uh, she'd know Gay, Gay Robbie, Robbie and the Fine mm -hmm. Cotton Affair. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm just wondering about um, those that don't have that familiarity. I mean, the Fine Cotton Affair with the, the gambling and betting and yeah. uh, illicit goings-on sort of thing. <laughs> Um, who's, who's your audience? I like to think, so I actually teach a, a subject called Classics and Trash, which is about, you know, talking about how the classics were kind of once quite popular. You know, Shakespeare wasn't the bard, you know, considered to be the, the centre of the canon that he is today. So I like the idea that things move in and out of popularity. And what I hope to do with my prose poetry is to use a whole lot of references that people will either know and pick up and be quite smug about it, um, or will perhaps go back to the computer image, you know, Google it and understand, okay, this is this is about um, racing. I'm not really sure what a Cox's Orange Pippin is, but I'm curious enough to Google it. And then, you know, while you're looking at Gay and, and Robbie, you're sort of picking up that there's something you're missing on the fine cotton affair thing. Why would an affair be fine cotton? You're not quite sure. And I think that kind of leads you to opening doors that perhaps you, you know, you haven't in the past and you've learned something from it, you know. And build your context. Yeah. Because it's all part of uh, the story Absolutely. so to speak. I mean you, you've also made reference to, to Willie Loman <laughs> and, uh, and yes. Hamlet and, and things like that as well. Thank heavens that all the, the teaching I did on those texts didn't go <laughs> astray to my students so they'll they'll uh, pick up on it but you know um, again the play with words is there arrhythmia tachycardia but then that's sort of linked to the horse's hooves on the uh, the track um, dare I mention Shakespeare the horse's hooves in the soft receiving earth uh, yeah. Henry, Henry V that's right. I just thought I'd throw that in <laughs> um, etc so yeah um, I mean, it's a wonderful play with language, which I love. I mean, Cox is Pippin, but then give you the pip. That's it's right. sort of almost, um, how would you describe that? It's sort of a toss away or yeah, a bit a, of a pun sometimes, yeah. a, bit, a bit playful, a bit cheeky. Yeah. Um, so it really is a delightful little collection. There's something in it for everyone. Um, but the life of a poet... Mm -hmm. How do you therefore survive? You mentioned teaching. Yeah, I do teach because you certainly uh, can't make a living as a, as a poet alone or, well, um, as a writer people, alone. As a writer, I was going to say, people, yeah. people I know um, would struggle. So, yeah, I do, I do teach uh, at university and I really love that because I feel that 
I also get references and I, I learn what's contemporary from my students. So they learn from me, but I like to think I learn just as much from them. But the language is also changing. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, totally, with the language they use and the language we use. That's and you've right. got to find that connection. Um, I just can't recall what I... Um, the words that one of my students that I was tutoring gave me the other day, and I was completely clueless um, <laughs> as to what she was referring to sort of thing. So I'm getting old. That's, <laughs> that's part of the problem. Um, but look, the, uh, the author, Cassandra Atherton, the book is called Trace, which is prose poetry or poetic prose. I'm fine by me. I'm fine <laughs> by you. It's a Finlay Lloyd Smalls uh, or part of a collection thereof, and they bring them out... Um, once Every a year? couple of years. I think Every the last lot was 2013. Yeah, and I think we all interviewed someone on a, a long, short story about that. Yeah, so this time they've got, I think, a, a couple of stories. They've got a, one that's a kind of hybrid. They've got um, and a couple of kind of novellas, I suppose. So, mm. yeah, they're really different. So it allows for a voice for what divergent voices. Yeah, I sort of think it's a bit cliched, but I think of them almost like prose poetry. So mm. you can read them as a whole, but they also belong to something bigger. So, you know, when you're talking about a reference that belongs to another book or or Shakespeare or something like that. So, mm. so I think of them. Well, Cassandra, thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. Not a worry. Jan? Well, we, we, we've got to go. We've got to go? We've got ruminations is coming, but They're I've had a outside. lovely chat. That was really interesting. Oh, I enjoyed everything it. today. I was speaking with Tanya Chandler and her book, Please Don't Leave Me Here, published by Scribe. And I was talking to Cassandra Atherton about Trace, which is part of the Finlay Lloyd Smalls collection. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening, participating, and next week we'll be on again. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.